From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. Later in the broadcast, we remember Ed Walker by looking back on our 2009 conversation with the radio pioneer, who was the longtime host of WAMU's The Big Broadcast. But first, about 40 years ago, a little thing, scratch that, a big thing called fair use was written into U.S. law. Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 lays out the conditions under which someone can fairly use someone else's work. When it was written, lawmakers had no idea that the digital age would become what it is today. But it has. And the fair use doctrine is now central to how content can be used and shared online. For example... A three-judge panel recently affirmed the lawfulness of Google Books, an effort to create a digitized, searchable repository of the world's texts. That ruling was based on whether or not the project counts as fair use. On today's Tech Tuesday, we're looking at the Google Books case and what the decision says about how we use and share information in the digital age. Joining me in studio is Latif Umtima. He is a law professor at the Howard University School of Law. He's also the founder and director of the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice. Latif Amtima, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here, sir. Also in studio with us is Sandra Astar. She's a law professor at the George Mason University School of Law, where she's also the director of the School Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. Sandra Astar, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Adam Eisgrau. He is the Managing Director of the Office of Government Relations at the American Library Association. Adam Eisgrau, welcome. My pleasure, Kojo. Thank you. It's Tech Tuesday. You can join the conversation by calling 800-433-8850. You can send us a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday or email to kojo at wamu.org. Letty, first, let's explain exactly what fair use is. Is. Can you define it for us and explain the role it plays in copyright law? Yes. Fair use is a mechanism whereby the public, anyone in the public, be it um, an individual, an institution, a school, even a commercial actor, can make use of copyrighted material under certain circumstances. Uh, the way that it is written into the statute is that we take a look at four uh, factors. Um, very briefly, one of the first things that we look at is what is the purpose of this un- unauthorized use? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it for some teaching purpose, some academic purpose? But really any purpose is possible, but that's one of the things that we look at. We look at the nature of the work involved. Is it you know, a factual text? Is it um, uh, a fictional uh, work? That's another thing that we that we consider. We also consider how much of the work are you using, the amount and substantiality of the portions that you're using. Obviously, if you're only going to use a little, um, that's going to make a difference. But even if you're going to use a lot, even if you have to use the whole thing, uh, it depends upon what the purpose is. You know, For example, sometimes you may need to use the entire work if you're going to do a parody of it or if you're going to use it in, in a classroom. And then finally, we take a look at what would be the impact of your use on the commercial market uh, uh, for the work. If you're going to use the work in such a way that um, it's going to be a substitute for people going out and buying the work, well, then that's going to 
mitigate, you know, against the use. But those are the things that we look at, and the underlying purpose is that we recognize that some of the rights that we leave to authors as being exclusive, the means whereby they, they can make a living from u- utilizing their works, that sometimes, if, if we're too restrictive with that, there may be a purpose that's going to benefit the public, that's going to benefit culture, that's going to benefit education, and that we need to be able to come in and make use of the works under those circumstances so as that the public isn't deprived and so as that culture isn't deprived. Commissioner, if I may, uh, Please do. it's important for listeners to understand as well that, that fair use, uh, in a literal sense of the word, is a revolutionary concept because the framers and this country fought a revolution to create ultimately all of the rights that we have in the Constitution. And fair use, while it's not mentioned in the Constitution, comes from the copyright clause. So this is not about... Article 1, Section 8. Somebody did their homework. Thank you. Uh, this is not about uh, commercial rights and an arcane set of rules as if it were, you know, the uniform commercial code about contracting. And that's why I appreciate you letting me jump in. This is about what the framers had in mind for the way that knowledge would be created and disseminated in a free society. And that's why the Supreme Court, over many, many years and many times and other courts, have said that fair use and other exceptions to copyright rights are essential if we are not to have a fundamental conflict with the First Amendment. Copyright provides monopoly rights, including the right to control somebody else's speech. If we didn't have a vibrant fair use doctrine, one that modified itself with the times, we would be running afoul of the First Amendment. But Sandra Estars, it seems to me that of the four um, aspects of the fair use law that Latif pointed to, the one that talks about the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work is the one that I guess was most at issue in this Google Books case? Well, I think there were two factors that the court spent a lot of uh, time considering and, and weighing. And I would actually argue that the one that was probably most uh, influential in the court's thinking was the first factor. Um, there's this doctrine that's emerged over uh, the years of uh, transformative use. Are you adding something to the work? Are you transforming it in some fashion that brings additional benefits to the public? And over the years, that factor has risen in importance in uh, court decisions uh, to the point where some might say uh, it uh, overshadows all the rest of the factors. Um, But the the commercial nature of the use was something that was also uh, considered, and uh, the uh, substitutional effect of the use was was considered by the court. Um, And I think the uh, problem with this case is that the court tried to craft a very narrow decision um, but the risk is that people will claim it means more than it does and that we'll end up in a, a series of uh, further litigation to try and define, you know, does everybody have to do the exact same thing Google was doing in terms of uh, limiting the availability of snippets? And uh, and that's, I think, going to be a, a tough line to draw. That is, the Google Books ruling came down to the question of whether the project should be considered fair use, as we've been discussing before we get... In more into the judge's decision, what exactly is Google Books? Well, Google Books, <coughs> excuse me, what it provides for is that 
at first, what uh, Google does with respect to the libraries who submitted their books into the project is that it makes digital copies of the books. Um, this allows uh, books to be uh, protected for archival preservation. It also allows books to be used in ways that human beings would not be able to effectively use them. So, for example, uh, one of the things, um, uh, a mechanism called data mining. If you want to examine, uh, one of the examples in the cases was that if you wanted to take a look at the way in which we think of ourselves as a country, uh, there came a point in time in which we ceased to refer to ourselves um, as a collective of individ individual states, meaning the United States are, and then we began to talk about the United States is. If you wanted to have an assessment as to when did that happen and how did our thinking begin to change, well, you could do a search uh, for that term in all of the books from a particular year, a particular decade, what have you, and then you'd be able to extract that information and determine when it is that we evolved in our thinking about, about our, our country. You could do that when the book is digitized um, in traditional uh, analog form. You wouldn't be able to do that. It would take a lifetime, maybe several lifetimes, in order to, uh, to figure that out. Um, the other aspect of the book, and perhaps one of the most important, is what we call uh, snippet searching. And what it does is that it enables anyone in the public for free to enter a search term, to, to example, to find out, okay, does this book at all discuss um, Einstein? And then once the results come back that indicates, okay, here are all of the books that do make a reference to Professor Einstein. Here are the number of times that it shows up. And then here are the snippets so that you know for certain that it discusses Einstein in the context in which you are hoping. One of the examples they give in the opinion is that this enables you to differentiate from a book in which the word Einstein occurs, you know, 10 times, but Einstein is actually the name of the author's cat, and it has nothing to do with what, what you're looking for. So, in effect, this now means that individuals, um, theoretically from all over the world, who have access to Google Books, you can now have what I look at, look at as the 21st century version of the card catalog. You can research every book that's in, in Google Books, millions of books, and at least be able to ascertain whether or not these books are important to whatever research inquiry, inquiry you have. The most, the most incredible benefit is that many of the, first off, the, the majority of these books are books that are out of print. So a lot of these books are books that most people don't have access to. Many of these books reside in elite university libraries. So this means that now you can be a kid in the rural south, in the rural Midwest, in the inner city in Harlem, and you can search Google Books to find out about books that you would never be aware of in terms of the resources that are normally available to you. So those are the key features of what the Google Books uh, project provides. Google partnered with libraries all across the world that agreed to help scan all of their texts into the system. They include the University of Virginia, Stanford, and Harvard, to name a few. If you'd like to join the conversation, do you agree with this court's decision, or should authors receive compensation when their books are viewed online? Have you ever used Google Books? What did you use it for? Did you end up purchasing the book you were looking at? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org, or send us a tweet at Kojo Show. You can go to our website, kojoshow.org, to join the conversation there. Judge Pierre Laval wrote in his decision, the purpose of the copying is highly transformative. 
the public display of text is limited and the revelations do not provide a significant market substitute for the protected aspects of the originals. That said, Adam Eisgrau, and I'll ask each of you this, do you agree with the court's decision? 127%, Kojo. Uh, Judge Laval, who agree is... Agree with it more than the court itself does? <laughs> uh, that's how much respect I have for Judge Laval, and the reason is that uh, he is uh, the uh, parent, uh, to be gender neutral, of this notion of transformativeness being what's key in a fair use analysis, and that is one of the really significant takeaways here, and I, I have to, with respect, uh, drop a little uh, footnote, sorry for the non-lawyers out there, to what uh, Sandra just said. The issue about what's being transformed, the analysis that the court went through, was not just about whether the work was transformed, but whether the use made of the work in this particular instance was itself transformative, very important, additional, not taking away from the work, not compromising the market, but was an important innovation. And that's extremely important on Tech Tuesday because it's that notion of a transformative use of the work that doesn't get at the expressive content of the work, that's what copyright protects, the expression, that's the key to every form of online search, it's key to the existence of computers, it's key to the existence of iPhones. If we didn't have a doctrine of transformative use and fair use, we wouldn't have Google or Yahoo or Bing or the iPhone or anybody else's tablet PCs, you name it. So do we agree with the, uh, with the opinion? Big time. And in part, we agree with it because it's the right type of limitation. Nobody's suggesting here that even though the full text of the book was scanned, that the full text of the book ought to be providable to the public or a researcher. But the court said it can be provided and should be provided to print disabled people. And that's a very important fair use as well. Nevertheless, and in spite of Sandra Astars, do you agree with the decision? So I'm disappointed by the decision, but I'm not surprised by it. I think Adam refers to the fact that the case law has evolved over the last uh, 10 years or so, and that there's a trend in cases to deem uh, uses where the purpose is to convey some sort of information about the work of fair use. Um, because they're not focused on delivering the expression uh, in the work itself. But I think um, the court is focusing too much on the output of the service rather than the input to the service. Um, Google doesn't transform existing works nor create new works, as Adam uh, noted. Um, it digitizes works. And this is important. It's socially useful. Everybody wants the service to continue. Um, but the question is, once Google created a valuable search engine and a valuable retrieval tool, should it be allowed to then populate it with unauthorized reproductions of 30 million authors' works? Google pays for exactly these same uses uh, being made of these authors' works when the rights are held by a publisher. It's only the authors who, who aren't sharing in the value of the service and who are uh, uh, supplying uh, really all the value of the service. There's nothing to search and analyze if there's no work to begin with. Um, and finally, Latif and Tima. Are well, you in I, agreement with the decision? Yeah, I happen to agree with the uh, uh, with the decision, um, 100%, maybe a little less. <laughs> <laughs> have to leave room. <laughs> uh, I think one of the important things that this uh, uh, case identifies for us is that, you know, we've always had books, but we have 
not always had and still don't have the resources to make certain that all books get to all people so that everyone has the same opportunity to grow, to learn, and to make their contribution to society's intellectual benefit. When the technological capability is finally placed in our hands that we can achieve these things and achieve these things at little or no expense, it seems to me that we have a constitutional obligation to go forward and, and to do this. Um, not, so not only do I agree with the decision, because the decision recognizes that digitization allows us to do something for social utility and social justice that we have never been able to do before, but it also, there's a little bit of a bittersweetness uh, to this, because, you know, the reason that it has taken us more than a decade to get here is is not only because there was opposition on the part of some rights holders, I don't think all rights holders were against um, the uh, the settlement in the first place, the, the project in the first place. But the government, through the Department of Justice, they took a particular position that they opposed um, um, the entry of the Google Books project. And, you know, it troubles me that the lack of vision on the part of government uh, insofar as making use of these things to the benefit of the public. And I juxtapose that with, and it's an unrelated topic, but I can't escape it, the DOJ took a position against the Google Books settlement, but in more recent issues in the um, litigation between student athletes and the NCAA, I don't see the NC, I don't see the Department of, of, of Justice taking an antitrust position there. So it, it's unfortunate that we aren't looking at IP rights for all IP holders, all benefits to the public across, across the board. And I would hope that this case would serve a signal to government representatives and vision just gave me an idea for another show but we have to take a break in this one right here if you have calls stay on the line if you'd like to call the number is 800-433-8850 you can send email to org. when is it okay to use other people's work to create something new without their permission where do you draw the line 800-433-8850 it's Tech Tuesday I'm Kojo Namdi It's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back to a Tech Tuesday conversation on Google Books and copyright law in the tech age. We're talking with Adam Eisgrau. He's the managing director of the Office of Government Relations at the American Library Association. Atif Mtima is a law professor at the Howard University School of Law and founder and director of the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice. And Sandra A. Stars is a law professor at the George Mason University School of Law. She's also the director of the school's Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. You wanted to talk a little bit about the larger access issue involved here? Yes, thanks, Kojo. Um, I think one 
uh, interesting point that Latif raises is uh, the social justice uses that might be made of these works. And um, I'm concerned about the case in part because it actually doesn't solve the issue of granting access to entire uh, works to readers. Um, and that's because the court very carefully emphasized the you know constrained and controlled and fragmentary nature of the snippet view that Google um, is allowing. Um, and that was its reasoning for uh, saying that Google Books, as it's presently structured, isn't significantly competing and substituting for book sales. Um, but that doesn't get to the uh, question of how do we actually get access uh, uh, to people, to the entire uh, entire work. And there are projects uh, before the U.S. Copyright Office and in Congress, which is in the midst of a big review of copyright law, um, that are uh, proposing to actually set up uh, extended collective licensing systems where authors would be compensated and greater use could be made of the work. And I'm, uh, I think that is the place where we should be solving these sorts of pr uh, problems, not in sort of case-by-case -case iterative uh, litigation before the courts. And mm -hmm. I'm worried that, you know, this decision might uh, actually prevent some of those uh, positive solutions that would both pay authors and uh, allow readers greater access to works from coming to fruition. The difficult broad question of where to draw the line between legal and illegal use of content is central to copyright law. So how do we strike that balance between allowing collaboration and creativity, but also making sure that original creators are fairly compensated. You do what the framers suggested, Kojo. You, uh, you allow it to be done case by case. You allow the judiciary to do its job. When Congress enshrined uh, the Fair Use Doctrine in 1976 in the Copyright Act, it was building on several hundred years of judicial tradition that Congress expressly said it did not intend to preempt. So Sandra is exactly right. This case has, in a sense, very broad implications in underscoring the importance of transformative uses of a work, but it is, in fact, limited to its facts, and that's not a bad thing. You have to remember that fair use is a defense to a claim of copyright infringement. So uh, the, all the people who were brave enough to do this were defendants in lawsuits, uh, some of them over the years facing big damages. <clears throat> the um, significant thing to understand is that we would not have uh, VCRs, we wouldn't have had DVRs, we wouldn't have had computers if the kind of formalism in copyright, the emphasis on the syllable of rights, <laughs> as opposed to exceptions of the rights, had predominated. It was literally Supreme Court decisions because people were defendants and claimed fair use as a defense to a claim of infringement that allowed the Betamax and the VCR to come into existence. So there's nothing wrong, zero, with the courts in an iterative way making law of this kind, nor is there anything wrong with Congress doing its job and deciding whether there's a larger problem to solve. What we don't want and don't need is the perception on the part of policymakers that more protection necessarily means more benefit. The framers knew better. Sandra, you made the case that there are likely to be appeals of this. I know that the Authors Guild is the one who, in a lot of ways, originated this case, and that, I guess, their concern is the issue of original creators being fairly compensated. 
That's right. That's that's their core concern. They've never sought an injunction to try and shut down the service. They've never sought to prevent it from uh, being successful. Uh, I think authors uh, uh, see the benefit of exploiting their works in a variety of ways. What they're really looking for is just uh, the ability to gain uh, some share of the revenues coming in from these types of services. Um, publishers uh, get a share of the revenues. Google gets a share of the revenues. Um, but the authors are unfortunately left out in the cold on this one. Kodra, I'm sorry to interject, but it's uh, very briefly important to understand that if you're not seen on the Internet, you don't exist. And Google Books is an unbelievable way, an inconceivably powerful way, for authors who would otherwise be completely obscure to be known in an instant. It sells books. So there's actually quite a bit of difference between having a search engine that combs the Internet and reveals results that uh, authors have themselves put up on the Internet uh, wanting to be found, wanting to be revealed, and a uh, tool like Google Books where Google scans the entirety of 30 million texts um, and puts it in its own proprietary database um, and and you know gives a copy a full copy of these uh, digital databases to libraries um, authors don't have access to those uh, those resources either Atif, Google Books remained operational while this was being argued in the courts, but while other Google products have evolved dramatically in the past decade, the book site hasn't changed much since it started. In fact, out of the dozens of smartphone apps Google offers, Google Books is not one of them. Now that its lawfulness has been affirmed, do you expect Google to invest more in the technology? I, I would expect so. I mean, you know, it, it was this needlessly drawn-out litigation that prevented the type of innovative use of this type of, of database. In fact, one of the things that I would expect to happen is that this is now going to permit copyright innovation in a broad range of, of areas. I mean, for example, now that there is this large digital database, I could see certain, you know, marginalized communities, for example, being able to take advantage of this. So, for example, if you're going to take a look at the works of the Harlem Renaissance, many of which are out of print, uh, many young students have no awareness of them whatsoever, I could see a group of innovative social entrepreneur entrepreneurs taking a look at that database and saying, let us work with you. Let us figure out, you know, which are the books in the in the database that are important to these particular interests. Let us work with community organizations and smaller schools and political organizations and sort of connect that bridge to let people know that here is a group of books, here is a, a segment of, of information that's important to you. It may not be terribly marketable, it may not be something that others are going to come in and invest in, but now we can work with this database and find ways to make this available to other people, to make it useful, and I think there could also be both some public interest as well as some entrepreneurial um, um, innovations in, 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 in this regard. But I think that goes well beyond what the court uh, deemed to be lawful in this case, and it actually shows some of the um, problems that authors argued existed with the reasoning in, in the case. Um, the court didn't uh, think about what would happen if these sorts of uses became widespread and unrestricted. How would security of the works be affected if it's not Google protecting them behind their 
uh, you know, firewalls and, and with their uh, strong security measures, but rather uh, a variety of nonprofit organizations who perhaps have, you know, fewer resources to provide that sort of robust security. The other thing that um, hasn't really been adequately considered is how are authors actually making use of uh, their works in the digital age. Um, most authors uh, who write for the trade press, the you know popular press that you see in the New York Times list of bestsellers, those authors actually get their rights back from publishers after a certain period of time or after the sales have dropped below a certain level. And so these are individual authors who are oftentimes expanding and uh, and improving on their works and making them available on on their websites. Um, the the fear here is that if you start having uh, substitutional uses um, because you've got a variety of things beyond this, you know, Google Books uh, uh, solution uh, going on, um, that authors will lose the entire value of their back catalog um, because they'll be forced to uh, be in competition with, uh, you know, uses that go far beyond what Google Books uh, permitted. Does it matter that Google is a for-profit company? Is there anything unsavory, unsavory, troubling about mixing the missions of public libraries and Google, Adam? Oh, absolutely not, Kojo. And in fact, the court spent a considerable amount of time talking about the fact that uh, the fact that Google is a for-profit company uh, did not in any way disqualify uh, the fact that these particular uses were, in fact, of fair use. There's a long line of cases to that effect. You know, I have to denote uh, in Sandra's uh, comments that there's always a fear of technology. There's always the parade of horribles. This goes back to the, you know, uh, I keep referring to the, the 1984 case of uh, Sony and the VCR being sued. And by one vote of the Supreme Court, that industry was permitted to come into existence. You talk about a back catalog and being able to exploit a back catalog. It was fair use and the court's 5-4 decision in the Sony case that created the ability for uh, producers, copyright owners, to exploit the back catalog. Authors ought to want to have their books scanned by Google Books so they can be seen, so they, in turn, can develop a back catalog uh, ability so, to sell. Uh, authors actually um, are scanning their own books, are making their books available in extended and improved form, and these sorts of services that you're pointing to are pointing people to lesser uh, lesser versions of the books, older versions of the books that well, haven't been updated. Allow us to hear from someone who identifies as an author. Chris, in Port Portsmouth, Virginia, you're on the air, Chris. Go ahead, please. Hi, I'm an, an author of six nonfiction history books that are traditionally published and liberally excerpted on Google Books. But I'm also a user of Google Books in research for those books that I'm writing, and Google Books is an extraordinary resource absolutely extraordinary and for example if you're writing about the war of 1812 you can find a book published in 1814 that takes you right back to that time so i don't write books to make a lot of money i think most authors don't because you can't in today's marketplace and that's another discussion but i do write books so that i can contribute and develop new information and ideas that will be available, you know, sort of forever as in the way the books are. So I have a choice. Do I lose a few dollars in royalties? And it's really a small amount. Even if my book sold thousands of copies, I still would be making a whole heck of a lot in royalties. 
or do I have my work sitting around for the next couple of hundred years, searchable on the Internet for use by people like me who have been researching books written 200 years ago? And the choice is very clear to me that um, what Google Books allows is what I really want to have happen. I'm also an author's guild Okay, we're running out of time very quickly. Allow me to get some responses from the members of our panel. First, you, Sandra, Estars. Yeah, so I I think the important word here is choice. Um, You should have the choice of how your work is is used and exploited by others when the entire work is taken for a commercial purpose. I mean, it's a David versus Goliath situation. We've got authors where the median income for an author is uh, $17.5,000 dollars a year up against Google that has a market capitalization above half a trillion dollars. But Google and the Authors Guild almost settled in 2011. Latif, could you tell us in 30 seconds or less why that fell through? Unfortunately, it fell through, one, because of the position of the government, two, because of the position of some authors, and three, unfortunately, some academic scholars didn't quite understand that you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. They wanted to get to this place where there would be a fair use decision, but the cost was that instead of having Google Books 10 years ago, we have waited 10 years, and those who have lacked the benefit and who had to suffer in the meantime, small communities, rural communities, they're the ones who had to pay the price. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Obviously, we're going to have to return to this conversation. Latif Umtim is a law professor at the Howard University School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. Adam Eisgrau is the managing director of the Office of Government Affairs at the American Library Association. Thank you for joining us. Delighted, Kocher. Thank you. And Sandra Astars is a law professor at the George Mason University School of Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we remember Ed Walker. I'm Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button and thanks.